Our text this morning is Luke chapter 11, and we're looking at three commands primarily given by Christ in this text. Ask, seek, knock. He's not suggesting that we do this. He's commanding that we do this. It says in, in this text that disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray as John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray. And I find it interesting that these men in Jesus' inner circle ask for instruction on prayer. I say that because almost every person in the world who's old enough to be conscious of their own thoughts believes that they know how to pray. This question... How do we pray is not a question we ever hear. No one asks that question. We are learning on Wednesday evening study that there are hindrances to prayer that impact our prayer life. But that said, most people believe they know how to pray. In Christian homes, we do take time to teach our children to pray. But this may be totally non-existent in the home of unbelievers. And yet as people age, they find themselves in situations that might be dangerous or unknown or befuddling to them. And they will pray, even if it is the measure of last resort. But here's my question. What good is prayer if it doesn't touch the heart of God? If prayer never influences God to act, why pray? Does God answer any prayer and every prayer just because we ask? Well, you know, some would say, yeah, yeah, that, that's what God is for. I pray, he answers. It's almost as though people think God is obligated to answer prayer regardless of the substance of the prayer. What if people ask for something that is sinful? What if they ask for something that is immoral? To think that God will answer those prayers shows that one does not know God at all. God is simply viewed as some great benefactor in the sky whose job it is to bestow goodies on people, even if the goodies are wickedly opposed to the holiness of God. So asking how to pray and being a humble enough person to learn how to pray is extremely important if you expect God to hear and to answer. So briefly then, I want you to look at the model prayer of our text, Luke 11, verse 2 and following. Notice I use the word model. This prayer has been called the Lord's Prayer. But our Lord would never pray this prayer. He didn't pray this prayer. This is a prayer he gave to his disciples in answer to their question, teach us how to pray. You say, why do you say that? Well, look at verse 4. It requests, forgive us our sins. Hebrews 4.15 says that while Jesus was tempted like every human being, he was, 
to quote scripture, without sin. He didn't fall to the temptation, as did Adam. Jesus then is teaching sinful disciples how to pray. This is not a prayer for him to pray. The first prayer is that God's name be hallowed. What's that mean? It means to be viewed as holy. His name to be hallowed in the earth and not profane. Not profane. Daily, almost constantly, people use God's name as an expression of surprise. Oh my God. They're always saying that. Or they're using it as a curse. God damn this or God damn that. God says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Exodus 20, verse 7. And I've asked the question, I wonder where does all this come from? People who have nothing to do with the Bible were not raised in Christian homes, but they will use God's name to do this or do that, say this or say that. It's part of that human nature that is against God that sinful human nature, to take his name and use it as a curse word or to use it as for every expression of surprise and so on. Second prayer, your kingdom come. Matthew adds, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer for God's rule to materialize in the world in utter defeat of Satan's kingdom of darkness and death. Third request, give us each day our daily bread. It's a prayer for physical maintenance and that comes from God's bounty. Saying grace at mealtime is an acknowledgement of this type of prayer request. By the way, I've even seen unbelievers say grace at their tables. Some of the TV shows that, you know, these reality TV shows, you know, they show people praying and at the table, at the end of the show, or before it, or whatever, and so forth. And that's to indicate, in our minds, the viewers' minds, that this is a Christian group, Christian thinking, and so forth. Well, it may or may not be, because people of the world say grace. The fourth request, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Matthew adds, for if you forgive men... When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. It's rather ludicrous to ask God to forgive us while we are unwilling to forgive the people who have sinned against us. We were asking... For something we're not willing to give to others. And then the fifth request. Lead us not into temptation. Matthew adds. And deliver us from the evil one. Now I'm quoting some of these other texts. Matthew, Mark. and Because they give other aspects of the prayer. That one, one of the writers. In this case Luke did not include. Now, for our study today, I want to hone in on the principle of asking. Asking. Which is the first application Jesus gives here 
of his own teaching on prayer. Verse 9. So I say to you, conclusion, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. We have a saying that we sometimes give to friends. They may be in a quandary about something in their life, not knowing which way to go. And we know, we know that there's help available, so we say to our friend, you'll never know unless you ask. It's one of the expressions we use. And what we are saying is something like this. I see your dilemma. You, you are weighing all the pros and cons. You need answers. But if you're afraid to ask for help, you won't receive any. It's a pride issue, you say. We don't want the party concerned to know that we have a problem. Or we are unsure if we want to hear the solution, if it will mean doing something we don't want to do, etc., etc. So there's a lot of reasons why people don't ask. There's a commercial right now running on TV for Nutrisystem, which, in which this woman makes the statement, I needed to lose weight, but I couldn't do it by myself. I needed help. Y'all know who, the, who I'm talking about, don't you? So she called Nutrisystem, Nutri got the home-delivered meals, and in the very physical sense, she saw herself as one already overweight, already unable to gain control of her diet. So asking for help was both rational and remedial. She signed up the program. She ate the meal. She lost the weight. I couldn't do it on my own. I needed help. Do you know that in the spiritual realm, there is weight too? There is the weight of our sin dragging us to the brink of destruction, pulling us towards the pit of hell. And if we do not ask God for help, there is no doubt as to the outcome. There will be people in hell because they were too proud and too arrogant to plead with God for forgiveness and mercy. Their pride will not permit them to accept God's evaluation of their spiritual plight. Well, let me tell you something. It's God's salvation. It's God's heaven you want to go to. It's God's mercy that you need. And it's all contained in God's rule book, the Bible. But no way are they going to read that and heed that. What is that? That's utter folly. The real folly is this. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. They don't pray. They don't ask for the essentials of salvation. There are some, praise God, who take Jesus' words seriously. In verse 9 he says, Ask and it will be given to you. In verse 10 he repeats, for everyone who asks, receives. Again, this is not granting a blank check. I asked to win the lottery and God did answer. No, these requests are tied to the disciples' prayer, verse 4, forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation. 
Jesus put it this way in the next chapter, Luke 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now how does God address genuine requests for spiritual help? We have an illustration in the text. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Snake, scorpion, deadly creatures full of poison? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11, verse 11 through 13. God gives good gifts to his children just as any loving father would do for his son. No snake when the request is for a fish and no scorpion when the request is for an egg. Are we better than God? Do earthly fathers outgive the goodness of God? No, never. God is willing and able to meet all of our spiritual as well as physical needs, but you have to ask. You have to ask. You say, well, why? Why? I'll tell you why. Asking shows dependence. Like the girl in the ad. I couldn't do it by myself. I needed help. Asking shows dependence. Have you heard someone say of another, he's too proud to ask? Or she is too ashamed to ask? These are both pride issues. Solomon the wise man warns us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16 verse 18. Isaiah agrees, adding these terrorizing promises from God. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Isaiah 13, verse 11 and following. How foolish for people to pride themselves all the way to hell. When forgiveness is available for the asking. For the asking. Secondly, Jesus says seek. Not only are we enjoined to ask, we are promised seek and you will find. The idea here is of a concerted effort to locate something needed, but something missing. The Flint Journal just this other week had an article in there of a woman who fell into a pool of water at, I don't know the name of this fall, Aquarock Falls, is that in the UP somewhere? Aquarock? Anyway. As she began to thrash about in this pool of water, she lost her diamond wedding band in about five feet of water. 
While the campground workers could not locate it, the local police were brought in. They couldn't find the ring either. Later, a 12-year-old boy vacationing from Tennessee heard about the loss, and he began using his snorkel with repeated dives to the bottom of this five-foot hole. Each time he would just go down there and grab some sand or grab some rock and just move things around. You know, if you're working with a snorkel, you've got to come up every now and again to grab some air. And he would come up, catch a breath. He did this for over 30 minutes. And then he saw a shiny object in the water. He says it wasn't the diamond part of the ring, it was uh, the gold part of the ring. He retrieved the lost ring and the police called the woman. She lived in Flint and she got her ring back. This 12-year-old boy evidenced tenaciousness until he acquired his goal. Now, it might have been the reward. She was offering a reward for the recovery of the ring. It might be that he just wanted to do it because it was great sport or because he wanted to really genuinely help somebody who had lost something precious to her. Whatever the motives, he didn't give up after five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. He kept working until he got the ring. Seeking God's salvation has its own reward, especially with Jesus' promise, seek and you will find. In another text, our Lord talks about things of value and he gives two parables concerning the value of the kingdom of God. And these parables are short and to the point. They're just like one sentence lines. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and when a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. End of parable. That's, that's short and sweet and to the point, right? Next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Matthew 13, verses 42. Four through 46, both of those parables in two verses. Treasures found are usually the result of concerted effort. That is, someone is looking, looking for the valuable among the mundane things of life. Once in a while, I, um, when I'm channel surfing, I come across antique road show on public television. People will come in with things that they have found in their grandparents' attic or purchased at an auction or a garage sale. They don't know, but they're hoping that the item looks old, looks different, looks a bit odd or unusual. They don't know, but they're hoping that the item that they have found by rooting through the debris and the clutter of the attic or the garage, they're hoping that it's worth, worth something, maybe a treasure. So they have this antique roadshow, all these antique experts come and they bring in their items. Conclusion of the appraisals run the full gambit of 
being worthless as a piece of junk, <laughs> to some rare painting of a famous but all forgotten painter that's worth $50,000, or a Venetian vase of rare glass and process from the 18th century worth hundreds of thousands of Jesus' point is that the kingdom of heaven is worth the search. It's worth the search because it is only those who search that find. How careless people are these days about their souls. Like the builder of barns whose bumper crop had his existing barns bulging at the seams. His solution, his solution was to tear down the mini barns and replace them with mega barns for the sole purpose. Here it is in his own words. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life Easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Luke 12, verse 18 and 19. His whole modus operandi was about life on easy street. In the here and now. With no thought. No thought about spiritual life. No thought about the destination of his soul. So imagine his surprise when God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get? Who will get what you prepared for yourself? Luke 12, verse 20. It's the proverbial, you can't take it with you. And Jesus ends with the moral to the story, which is this. Jesus' words. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verse 21. This man was a treasure hunter in the wrong dimension. He was putting his roots down deep in the soil of this world without consideration for where and how he would spend eternity. Jesus taught his disciples the right way to prioritize their lives. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Few people in our day have their priorities straight. They're not seeking God and his forgiveness. The third command in Jesus' words in our text is knock. Again, with a promise attached to it. Verse 9, knock and the door will be open. Or again, verse 10, to him who knocks, the door will 
be open. Now we have right in this text Jesus' illustration of this. Look at verse 5 and following. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight, and he says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Verses 5 through 8. Now it's midnight, the stores are closed. This is the day before 7-Eleven and party stores that are open 24 hours a day. And this man comes to his friend's house at midnight. I need your help. How earnest are you in praying to the Lord to save you? How much energy, how much sincerity, how much fervor is part of that prayer? The homeowner, in Jesus' illustration, put up some resistance to his friend knocking at his door at midnight requesting food for his house guests. I mean, this guy had just dropped in unannounced, but now this friend is bothering his other friend who's already in bed. He tried to put him off. My door is locked for the night. It's late midnight. My family and I are all in bed. I can't get up. I'm not giving you anything. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This word boldness in the Greek language is fascinating. Here's what it means. Shamelessly persistent. Wow, how colorful is that? Shamelessly persistent. That is, he throws all precaution, all propriety to the wind, not caring one whit whether he was inconveniencing his friend by waking him up in the middle of the night, bugging him to get out of bed, come downstairs, open the door, give me the things I need. You didn't take any of those things into consideration. It's I need bread for my guests, I need to feed them, and you can help. Do you know that if we are the person in need and God is the homeowner with the supplies we need for our souls, can we do this? God, you have to help me. Go away. You have to help me. You're bugging me. This is improper. You're out of place. It's too late. Should we keep knocking relentlessly, refusing to take no for an answer? 
The Old Testament gives the account of God coming to Jacob as the angel of the Lord in the night. He was scheduled to meet his estranged brother the very next day. The last time Esau and he had spoken, Esau pledged to kill Jacob for having tricked him out of his birthright. Years had passed, but now, but now, Jacob did not know. I wonder if Esau's still holding that grudge against me. He believed that he and his family were in danger. So Jacob sent his family across the brook, and he was left alone on the other side of the brook in a solitary place to pray. Remember I said when people are in trouble, they, they will pray. It doesn't matter. They, they'll pray. And there a man wrestled with him all night, the God-man. Jesus is one of these Christophanies we have in the Old Testament. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ in human form prior to New Testament birth. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. This is going on all night. But Jesus, or excuse me, not Jesus, Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, which means deceiver, but Israel, one who has prevailed against God, Prince of God. He gives him the reason for the name change. Because you have struggled with God and with men and you have overcome. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Genesis 32, verse 24 through 30. Jacob was spared from the hateful wrath of his brother Esau because he prayed relentlessly for God's blessing and deliverance. God said, let me alone. It's daybreak. Let me go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. How bad do you want salvation? Ask, seek, knock with this promise. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. What's going on there? It's a test of sincerity. You really want God in your life? Or are you going to be a user of God? One of these people that prays when you're hurting only. We heard from the young people this morning. The emphasis of camp was that God's name be glorified throughout the earth. It's not about us. It's about him. Now, secondly, how can we know that God has answered our prayer for salvation? 
Let me say firstly that God wants you to know that you belong to him. John writes in his first epistle, his first letter, the reason for his writings, and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5 verse 13. So I can say very boldly that God wants you to know that you have eternal life. There are many people who think they're saved, but they aren't. It's a terrible delusion because such people have a false assurance. Someone convinced them that if they walked the church aisle at the invitation to come to Christ, if they prayed a certain prayer, they were saved then and there for time and eternity. While we have been seeing this morning the importance of prayer, we have also been emphasizing sincerity and tenaciousness and commitment to God, apart from which the prayers prayed for salvation might have been simply a, a disingenuous follow-through with an external protocol which really has no substance in saving grace. Well, the preacher told me to do this. I did it. I'm saved. can't approach God that way. When Israel of old simply approached God with a repetitive protocol, devoid of real love for God and a desire to be forgiven and restored, God became indignant with them, his people, and he protested. Let me read it to you. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Who asked you to come like this? He goes on. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Why not? He goes on. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let's, let's reason together says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. Isaiah 1, verse 12 and following. So you see, going through religious ceremony, including prayer, is no assurance of salvation. Then for the truly repentant and forgiven, God wants you to be assured of this. So how may we know that we're saved? Well, number one, God has promised the gift of his Holy Spirit. Verse 13 in our text. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To have the Spirit of God is to be saved. 
Let me read it for you. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. I'm reading Scripture. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit's alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Romans 8, verse 8 and following. The spirit. God gives his spirit to his people. Okay, but that seems to be trying to answer a question by generating another question. What's the proof of the Holy Spirit's residence in my life? Paul answers, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. Jesus' admonition is this. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire thus by their fruit you will recognize them the false from the true and he goes on not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who will, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew seven eighteen through 21. Holy Spirit fruit in your life is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is present in your life and the presence of the Holy Spirit means that you're a child of God. Secondly, the ability to discern spiritual truths. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. 1 John 2, verse 20, 21. Paul put it this way. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths using spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 and 13. It's one of the good signs that you have the Spirit of God living within your heart. You understand or begin to understand the things of Scripture. Number three, a personal fight against sin. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, writes John. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. 
He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 5 through 8. Not sinlessness. That's not what these verses are saying. But it's talking about dealing with the habit of sin. We're being sanctified. And the sin is going by the wayside and we're becoming more like Christ. We're learning how to do right and be righteous because he's right and he's righteous. And we're moving from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. These are just some, just some of the evidences that you could look for in your life to see if indeed the Holy Spirit of God is there. Okay, what if God changes his mind? Uh, That is about saving you. Let me ask this question. Why do people change their minds? Why do you change your mind? I would suggest it's because circumstances arise for which you did not account and over which you have no control. A husband comes involved with another woman, so he wants a divorce. Did you count on that when you said, I do? A high school graduate cannot find a job, so he or she decides to further his or her education in some field where they are hiring. It's pouring down rain on picnic day with the family, so everyone heads to the movie theater instead. We change our minds. We change our minds all the time because we learn things we didn't know before. Or things arise beyond our control. Or because we have thought something through and we've come to a different conclusion. Well, yeah, I know I said that. I know I, know I thought I was, I, was, I was going in that direction, but I've, I've had time to think about this a little bit. Have you ever said that? I've had time to think about this a little bit, and I, now I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. That's why we change our minds. Well, let me say, as frankly as I can, God never changes his mind because he controls all things. Nothing surprises God, including your sin. There's nothing he doesn't know about you now or in your past or what you will do in the future. God's choice to save sinners is with full comprehension of their sin and what he's getting. Let me tell you, he only has sinners to work with. So you're no different than any other Christian that God has brought into his family. We're all a bunch of sinners. And he knows everything about us. Not that we're just the black sheep of the family. We're all black sheep. God's decision to adopt you as his child was made before the creation of the world. Ephesians 2 tells us. At which time he wrote your name in the registry. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is written there, you are assured that it will never be erased. 
Say, so how do you know that? Let me I'll let God speak for himself. Let me read it for you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. God is declaring to you and me and anyone that want to read it. It's to my glory. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie and he doesn't change his mind. I'm not a man. Don't think of me as a man. The writer of Hebrews describes our Savior this way. God has said, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Infinity sign, no period, no semicolon, no exclamation point. The same today and forever. Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 5. And Jeremiah reminds us, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentation 3, verse 22. Therein, brethren, is our peace and our assurance. Ask, seek, knock, and you'll obtain the goal of your salvation. And once you're in God's family, he will never disown you. Not ever. Your sins are bought and paid for in Christ. So it isn't us hanging on to him and hoping we have the strength. It's Christ. Hanging on to us. My father is greater than all. And no one can pluck you out of his hands. That's security. That's eternal security. And it's because of God's grace. Father, if there's some here this morning, they need to ask they need to seek, they need to knock, and they need to be snacious about it. I pray that you will grant them that great love for you that they don't have, the repentance of sins that they love more than they love you, that they can give up those sins and come to Christ. Those ones that are trying to earn their way to heaven, help them to see. It ain't going to happen. They need to ask for help. They need to seek the treasure that's hidden in the gospel, now revealed in Jesus Christ. They need to knock on that closed door with shameless perseverance. 
not giving up, not worried about him, whether it's proper or any protocol or any of that. Shameless impropriety. Oh God, may we be those that ask and seek and knock. And grant to those that are struggling with, I wonder if I'm saved, if they really know Christ, if they really have cast their care upon you, give them that assurance and that peace that only comes from Jesus. Help them to see that they are held in the hand of the almighty God and none, not even they, can snatch themselves out of your hands. Thank you for your grace that seeks us and wins us and keeps us for your glory. Amen.